Thanks again for listening to the Park Hills Podcast. If you want more information on things Park Hills is doing, parkhillschurch.com or the Park Hills Church app. Okay, so this will be a little bit of a history nerdy lesson that some people might like. Other people might think it's absolutely boring, so you make your decision right now. But in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, it says this, And Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown of Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So I don't want to spend a ton of time today on the idea of him being rejected per se. I want to spend a little more time just talking about what Nazareth was, why it matters, some of the theories that go along with some of the things that are talking about in this passage. And these are things that we don't have time to dig into the sermon in its fullest extent. So we're just tossing them here on the notes of the cutting room floor. So let's start with Nazareth. And I, I want to start by just saying, Words, etymologies, sometimes are interesting to people. We also need to be very careful not to read too much into them because there's so many debates about these things. But the thing that I think is most compelling about the the etymology of the word Nazareth uh, comes from the word Netzar, which in Hebrew, Netzar means branch. Uh, There's a couple other possible meanings. One would be to winnow or sow. One would be, uh, you know, just to scatter or throw around. But the idea of Netzar having a branch feel to it is interesting. Now, there are problems with this theory and with this concept, and I want to point that out firsthand. But I just want to say it's an interesting thing that I want to talk about. And so go with me where you want to go, but understand, you know, we got to be very careful. uh, Because some would say that the word is actually not Netzar, but it's actually Nasar, which would be watchtower or sentinel, uh, which is similar to some things that we see in in Isaiah and other places as well. So, again, we're being careful here, but the word netzar in Hebrew means branch. And why this is interesting, and this is why I heard it, or how I heard it, and why I think it's it's important for us to talk about, the idea is that in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, and then, you know, kind of flowing from there, there's this talk that that there's going to be someone from the the tribe of of Judah from the branch of David. There's going to be a branch or a shoot from the line of David who's eventually going to rule and be the, the king. And the indication there is that this person would be the Messiah, this person's going to be the ruler, the one that we're looking for. So what tradition tells us, and again, I want to be very careful here with tradition because some of these things are speculated and they kind of become a cool thing that people get to say in Israel because uh, they think it's super cool and everybody, you know, thinks it's amazing and goes home and thinks their life has changed. But, you know, it might be true. It might not be true. So we got to be careful. The The rumor goes like this. 
and I and I'm saying this again to be very careful because the word Nazareth never shows up in the Old Testament and it doesn't show up really anywhere in New Testament times. The first time that the town is actually mentioned beyond the Bible is in, in the 3rd or 4th century and the reason for that is because people are starting to go to Nazareth to set up churches and build things over places that they say Jesus was here or was there or whatever. So we just got to be very, very careful here. And so I'm doing this with a bit of trepidation, a bit of nerves, but with all of those caveats that I've just put on it, here's the story that I've heard and here's why I think it's important. So in the ancient world, Isaiah chapter 11, verse one, talked about this branch, this, this shoot. Well, then you got to think within a few years of that, the, nation of Israel is wiped out by the Assyrians, right? And so in 722 AD, or sorry, 722 BC, not AD, 722 BC, the Assyrians march down and they take over the the capital city of Samaria, which is the capital of the northern tribes, which is the nation that we call Israel. If you recall, after Solomon's son took over, he was kind of a bonehead and the kingdom was split in half. And so you had two different kingdoms. One, the kingdom of Judah, which preserved the line of David. And one was the kingdom of Israel, which was following a king named Jeroboam. And Israel had just a wild history. I mean, they were all up and down and uh, you know, ransacked a couple times. Even they fought with Judah a few times. Their kings are all bad. You know, Judah only has a couple of good kings, but at least they have a couple. So these two kingdoms, the northern kingdoms of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, is still what we would call Israel, one one whole chunk, right? It was meant to always be all together. But because of the rebellion of Solomon and because of Solomon's son, the kingdom is broken in half, uh, and the tribe of Judah and part of Benjamin basically stay within their kingdom, and Jerusalem is their capital city, and then the northern tribes of Israel. Well, the northern tribes are wiped out by Assyria in 722 BC, like I said. And so Assyria marches down, captures Samaria, wipes out Israel, takes a bunch of people captive and runs away with them. But right before that, Isaiah begins giving these, these amazing prophecies. And the Isaiah 11 one is, is this idea of this branch or this shoot. Well, after the Assyrians uh, conquer Samaria, they move into Israel. And if you remember the story... They move all the way into Jerusalem. They go to attack Judah. And as they surround Jerusalem, Hezekiah goes to the temple and just says, Lord, only you can save us. Hezekiah has just built a tunnel that allows fresh water to still be in Jerusalem. And all of those things kind of come together at a head. And Hezekiah asks the Lord, Lord, save us. Only you can save us. And at night, the angel of death comes, wipes out the army. The army then leaves. And as the king leaves, he gets killed by somebody of his own family. And then within a few decades, uh, Assyria just disappears from the face of the earth and they're conquered by, uh, by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians then, uh, later on, begin to move down into the territory. Remember, Hezekiah brings them down into the, the temple, shows them all of the amazing things he has. And Isaiah says, you know, this is not going to go well for you. They're going to take over. This is bad. Well, what ends up happening is the Babylonians then march into Jerusalem and they destroy Jerusalem in, in 586 BC. They take a lot of the strongest, wisest people and bring them out to Babylon and, and set them up as regents in various places. So that's where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel, uh, th- that's where those four all become, you know, the book of Daniel and the significant stories there. But they're all in exile. None of them are actually at home. So then a couple of hundred years later, as people start to arrive back home, they 
read Isaiah. They, they're looking at Isaiah, and Isaiah makes this prophecy in Isaiah 9 that says, out of Galilee will come a light, a light that shines in the darkness. So between the light that shines in the darkness in Galilee and between the fact that you have this idea that there's a branch coming from the shoot of David, right, this, this individual who's going to come and bring a kingdom and, and fix things, there's this tradition that begins to be built up in, in the nation of, or the area of Galilee, in the nation of Israel. And as the nation reforms itself and you know, pushes out the Greeks and, and wins victories under the Maccabees and then eventually become independent and then eventually are destroyed and, and taken over by the Romans, there's this tradition that's building up. There's a branch coming. Someone's coming. And so, again, the reason why I'm a little nervous about all of this is because there's not a mention of Nazareth. But here's the story and here's how it goes. The rumor is, the story is, that a number of individuals from David's line begin to live in Galilee because they're looking forward to the day that the Messiah is going to come. And so as they set up shop in Galilee, one of the places that they create a little living space is this town that has been in existence for, you know, a couple thousand years at this point. But because it's been a tiny town and it's a farming community, it's a nice place to hide. It's up on a hill. It's about 500 meters above sea level. Uh, you know, so what would that be? You know, 1,500 feet above sea level. Um, it's it's kind of a, a beautiful part of Galilee. It's got uh, just, you know, gorgeous uh, hills and green. Uh, it's around the ed- very edge of Galilee as well. And so they named this town in their name, Nazareth. And the reason that I heard is that people started naming it Nazareth because they wanted it to be a branch town. They wanted it to be a place where the expectation of the Messiah would be. And so there's this other prophecy in the Old Testament that says he will be called a Nazarene. So Matthew links into that and says he grew up in Nazareth, which is why Matthew says he must be called a Nazarene, pulling from that other prophecy. So if you just imagine like the prophetic need of people in this area, they are looking forward to a branch person. They're looking forward to the Messiah coming, and they're setting themselves up in Galilee, right on the fringe of Galilee, because they believe this is where a light is going to come. So just think, these people know the text. They know the text so well that they want to set up shop. They want to be able to build their homes in a place with this messianic expectation. So it's no surprise in my mind that years later, uh, a girl in Nazareth has an angel appear to her and says, I am going to uh, give you a message. The Lord is going to allow you to have a child. And she says, how could this be? And then, you know, the whole discussion happens. And then her fiance named Joseph, um, you know, thinks about divorcing her, decides not to because another angel appears to him. And this whole story is just so beautiful. Well, then they go down to Bethlehem. The baby's born. They live there for a while. Then they flee to Egypt, as you remember. And then they come back from Egypt and go to set up in Judah because that's where you would set up if you were the king, right? If you're, if you're someone who's directly descended from David, why wouldn't you be in Judah, the Bethlehem area? You know, if you have the right to the throne, why wouldn't you be in Judah? But, but Joseph's afraid. Uh, and, and rightfully so, of, of Herod and his whole family. And so Joseph moves them up to the place that they both grew up, this, this little town of Nazareth. And most scholars think we're talking three, four hundred, five hundred people. So it's a tiny little bumpkin country town. And Joseph sets up shop and starts living in Nazareth. And so what was Nazareth? Nazareth was a town that claimed direct line to David, people who had descended from David, and they chose to live in Galilee because they believed that a light was coming to Galilee, and they believed that 
they should name themselves Nazareth because they believed that a branch or a shoot of David was going to come from their line. And how great is it that that's exactly what happened, is that Joseph and Mary have this child named Jesus, who's Joseph's not really his father, but his adopted father, so to speak, and this supernatural child, Jesus, is born, and he grows up in Branch Town, becoming actually that branch man. He, he was that branch man from his birth, and it becomes fulfilled later on. And then Matthew links in this prophecy of he will be called a Nazarene. So very interesting to me. So what was Nazareth? Nazareth was a unique town and a unique place with a unique purpose and a unique vision of what they're supposed to be doing. So that's one thing I want to set there. Second thing I want to talk about really briefly is you noticed in Mark that it talks about the, the, the brothers of Jesus, and it names all four of them, James, Joseph, or Yoses, uh, Judas, which would also be Judas, uh, right, or Judah, and Simon. And so these four, uh, there's a huge amount of discussion about. Wait, did Jesus have brothers? How does this work? What's going on? So I believe, yes, that Mary and Joseph had more kids after Jesus was born, and that Mary and Joseph, however many kids they had, whether it was all these boys and these girls or whatever, yeah, I believe that they absolutely have a connection there. And I, I also believe that partly because the book of James and the book of Jude, which would be two of these individuals, uh, seem to have some kind of connection to calling themselves the, you know, the brother of Jesus, um, or at least a servant of Jesus. So this servant of Jesus, this brother of Jesus, these individuals clearly come to faith later on after Jesus dies and rises from the grave, and they realize he really is who he says he is. You know, I, I think it's totally true that they are the brothers of Jesus. The problem is that's not what everybody thinks. Some people have strong opinions, and there's two big reasons why they have the strong opinion. And the the big one is the main one, and that, that's the fact that they want Mary to have perpetual virginity, and so therefore she couldn't have had any relations with anyone, and she couldn't have had children of her own outside of this miraculous moment that Jesus was born. Uh, that That's more of the Catholic tradition, as you, you might know at this point, as I've said that, so I'll just say it out loud. You know, That's one of the traditions that, that's pulling from this. So the idea that they have is that Joseph was an older man, which, by the way, is certainly possible. It is possible that Joseph was uh, married before, was a widow, had multiple children with his first wife, and you know is betrothed to Mary, and marries Mary and raises her child with with her, and becomes the father of Jesus. That's very possible. Uh, you know, I'm not going to put it past anybody. That is, it's possible. I think the reason that I'm nervous about it is if you're only doing that to prepare, you know perpetuate Mary's virginity. I don't know that that's the most necessary thing to perpetuate. Who who cares? The other way to look at it is the word brother can sometimes be translated as cousin, and so some have said maybe these are cousins of Jesus. This is Mary's sister's kids or Mary's brother's kids or Joseph's brother's kids or Joseph's sister's kids, whatever, that these are cousins of Jesus that are growing up at the same time and they're all very connected and very, very close. But again, the only reason why you'd need to do that and why you'd need to translate that word this way is if you're trying to keep Mary in some kind of state that, that she doesn't need to stay in. Uh, she doesn't need to stay perpetually a virgin because she had her miraculous birth. Who cares if she ended up having more more children afterward? It doesn't affect her holiness. It doesn't affect who she is in the Lord. It doesn't affect even how he feels about her. So it's just a weird tradition that built up. And so some people will push back and say, these these aren't brothers. These are step-siblings or they are cousins. And all of those things come from that big reason of they're trying to perpetuate Mary's uh, virginity, which 
in my opinion, is not necessary. So therefore, I absolutely see these as their siblings. And I think Mary and Joseph had a bunch of kids after Jesus was born. Uh, that's what you would do in a farm town. You'd have a lot of children. And so it's just totally natural as to what's going on. So last thing to talk about, Nazareth, like I said, is a super small town at the time of Jesus. And it makes total sense that they know who this guy is. It would also make sense that they kind of struggle with him, right? As Jesus comes and teaches, they go, who is this guy? We know who he is. Now, what I find interesting, and I point this out in the sermon briefly, is I find it interesting that they are so hung up on his past, even though his past has nothing to hide. Uh, Jesus didn't sin. He wasn't a bad guy. And nobody ever says he's a bad guy. They just say he's a carpenter. He can't possibly be a messiah. And some people have freaked out, like, why did he grow up in Nazareth? And this is one of the things that some of the religious leaders freak out about with Jesus because they say, no, nothing good comes from Nazareth. He can't possibly be Messiah. You know, there's no reference of a prophet or Messiah coming from Nazareth. It's not entirely true. Back to that prophecy that Matthew points out of he, he will be called a Nazarene. But it also doesn't really matter because we know he was born in Bethlehem. We know he has a connection to David. We also know about the rest of the story that the the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah were wiped out by first Assyria and then Babylon, respectively. And in the middle of all of that, then you go, okay, so they don't actually have to be living in Bethlehem to be connected to David. They did go down there for the census and had the baby there. But him growing up in Nazareth absolutely fits the motif of what we're talking about. He's a branch child from the edge of Galilee. It would make sense that he's growing up there. And quite honestly, I think some of the things that people freak out about doesn't matter as much. So then you might ask the question, well, why do they reject him if they're looking forward to the Messiah? And this is one, I just want to close with this idea, and I want you to think about it. If you are convinced that you have the in, that you know exactly what you're looking for, you have the edge, you know what a Messiah is supposed to be, you have a really strong opinion, I don't know that Jesus would live up to your expectations. And so I think some of why they reject him in, in Nazareth is because they think they've got it all figured out. They think they know exactly what they're supposed to be looking for and who, they're spo- who he's supposed to be. And I don't know if you've noticed, but in the gospel so far, even though Jesus is the son of God, he's not living up to people's expectations, which says a lot about our God, that he doesn't feel like he needs to live up to people's expectations. He can kind of do his thing and trust that everybody's going to be you know, either obedient or not to that. But also the idea that he, he actually pushes back on our understanding and gives us a whole new way of looking at things, a whole new lens. And so I think it's beautiful that, that Jesus is teaching in Nazareth. They can't get over themselves. It's not beautiful that they reject him, but it is beautiful that Jesus wants to work with us. And if we aren't willing to work with him, that it's not that his plan is thwarted, like I said in the sermon. It's not that God wasn't able to do what God wanted to do because God can do whatever he wants to do. But God wants a partner. And if we're not going to partner with him, he won't do anything with us. And that's interesting. And that should haunt us, and it should also encourage us that you are called to be a part of what he's doing, and he wants you to work with him. So those thoughts are interesting to me, so I thought I'd share them with you. Nazareth has a unique history, and like I said, I'm a little nervous about even sharing some of this because there's no guarantee that any of it's true, although I have no reason to doubt what I've learned. But I will tell you, there's some websites out there that will push back on some of these things. But I think it's a very curious thing that a group of Jews would set up shop in a little town, call it Nazareth, with all of the prophecy that goes along with that. The idea of the Nazarene, the idea of, of the, the branch or the Netzar from Isaiah chapter 11. 
So it's pretty compelling to me. It makes a ton of sense. So I think Nazareth absolutely is the place that uh, they claim it to be, and that these people are eagerly looking for Messiah. He's right in front of them, but they can't see him because they have their lenses up of what they want him to be, and he's never going to be that for them.